on episode 10 of the Busy Aviation Podcast, and who'd have thought that we'd get to episode 10? I welcome Paul Dickens, an aviation psychologist from Core Aviation Psychology. And we're going to talk about all things mental health and how mental well-being affects us both as commercial and leisure pilots. Welcome, Paul, to the Busy Aviation Podcast. It's awesome to have you join me today to talk a little bit about aviation psychology. Before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an aviation psychologist? How long have we got? (laughs) Well, we've got all night. (laughs) It's a long story. Um, I I, I, I actually almost have to go right back to the beginning because um, when I... When I was applying to university, one of the things I wanted to do was get into psychology and organizations for various reasons. Um, And I went to university in Exeter. But while I was there, I actually got influenced by one of the lecturers who was a clinical psychologist. And he kind of sort of said, oh, no, that's what you want to do. Go into clinical psychology. So that's what I did. Um, I got a place on the clinical psychology course in Glasgow University, moved to Scotland, um, where I've stayed ever since, uh, and became a clinical psychologist, which I still am, a registered clinical psychologist. And I started working in the NHS, nothing to do with aviation at all. Um, So worked through in the NHS, got myself to the exalted heights of consultant clinical psychologist, um, advisor to the Scottish government and clinical psychology, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But at the same time, what I've been doing is also doing in my own time some consulting work. And I kind of reached a decision point where I thought, actually, what I would prefer to do is move out of the NHS for various reasons and go into consulting. I did that and I joined a firm of organisational psychologists who are mainly, like me, clinical psychologists. It so happened that one of their major clients was British Aerospace. So I found myself quite quickly working probably 60% of my time in the aviation manufacturing environment. And I loved it. I actually really enjoyed working there. I got to work with Airbus. I got to work with uh, the really exciting bits of Eurofighter over in Germany. Um, Panavia, who obviously were uh, the, the, the body that looked after Tornado, um, worked quite a lot with um, British Aerospace commercial aircraft when they had that, um, which certainly eventually disappeared, and also with British Aerospace military aircraft. Uh, they become BAE systems and, and so on, but a good deal of my time was then taken up in aviation manufacturing. Um, I left that company, set up a company on my own with um, some sort of backing from uh, another firm. And and it kind of, the aviation bit fell away a little bit because a lot of the clients I was working there were actually more oil and gas. Um, However, (laughs) um, a little bit later on, a, a group of colleagues and myself bought out that company and formed Core Business Psychology. And I was sitting one day with in core business psychology and the phone went and it was somebody I knew from uh, occupational psychology who said to me, do you know anything about helicopters? <laughs> I said, well, I know a little bit about aviation. And um, she said, but you know a lot about assessment, don't you? I said, oh, yes, I've kind of specialized right the way through my career in psychological assessment. She said, well, there's this company in Aberdeen that's got helicopters that are looking for a psychologist to assess pilots. Um, so I said, oh, I could probably do that. <laughs> um, and that was the start of it. Um, so I, I sort of ended up in Aberdeen, um, as you probably uh, know, with uh, one of the major offshore operators who have had a policy for a long time of putting th- all pilots through quite an in-depth psychological assessment. And likewise, they also put engineers through, which is fairly unique. Um, and it's just grown from there. Um, from one client, it is now probably in the region of 30. Um, all, all four major offshore operators, UK SAR, Irish SAR, um, a good number of the onshore helicopter operators. 
But the other thing that's happened in the last probably three years is my work has shifted quite um, significantly into fixed wing operation. And now probably I think 60% of my work is with fixed wing operators, which vary from um, one in Sweden that has one aircraft <laughs> and two pilots through to one in the UK that has 1,400 plus pilots um, and everything in between and covers the real gamut of stuff from um, scheduled airlines um, through to um, business jet operators, charter operators. Um, so a, a real range of things. And, you know, that's one of the things that really interests me is the range of stuff I do. So that long convoluted explanation is how I got to be doing what I do just now. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite interesting, and I, I've never heard you explain it all the way through. I've never, I've never actually asked you before how you actually got, no, and, and particularly, yeah. you know, in in the offshore world, which is a little bit niche. But as you say now, you're you're covering a lot of fixed wing as well. And I take myself back to the start of my career, and uh, well, in the RAF, and there was wasn't psychology as such. I mean, there was aptitude testing. Uh, was there psychology? Yeah. Probably not on a formal basis, but. That has it's now really expanded, and you, you've probably hinted a little bit there about the uh, increase in the interest. Not we tend to follow up in the helicopter world, but in the fixed wing world, what has caused for this 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 expansion of of companies wanting to know one before they employ somebody what kind of personality they may or may not get, and 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 two, I think actually once pilots are employed there has been an expansion of of uh interest in in psychology and mental health what what is there anything particular that's caused that I, well i think actually it's it's always been there i mean if you go back to the start of aviation psychology it was actually not that long after the wright brothers <laughs> surprisingly right. enough um they um because certainly during the first world war it was becoming evident that you couldn't just take somebody who was an officer and put them in an aircraft and hope they could do the job, that you actually had to have some sort of selection process. So actually psychological assessment started at the same time as it was growing as a body of knowledge in the general population, it grew as a body of knowledge in, in aviation as well. And, and that continued. Um, it was given another impetus by the uh, Second World War, and I often say to pilots, one of the tests I use still to this day was developed for selection of uh, bomber crews during the uh, Second World War. And another one I used was actually developed for the Luftwaffe in the 1930s for the selection of fighter pilots. So uh, it gave a big impetus to assessment. Um, and that continued. And of course, after these, the, the first and second, after, certainly after the Second World War, most of the commercial operators then began the process of, of putting this in place. Um, and it's been, aviation psychology has been around since that time in my field, which is assessment. It's also been around in the field, another part of aviation psychology, which is um, the link between the human and the machine. So the human interface, yeah. the human factors bit. Um, and that, that is a, still a very big component. Um, and it's no surprise that a, a large number of aviation psychologists are actually employed by the likes of Boeing and Airbus particularly um, because they look at this, the, the whole area of cockpit design, layout. Um, it's, it's a, it, that has been a continuing area. So I think it's always been around. It's been given a big push um, by legislation, as you well know, um, there is now legislation in Europe that all pilots have to go, or commercial pilots have to go through psychological assessment prior to commencing line operations. So obviously that's put a big, put a big emphasis because a number of operators were already doing this. Um, Lufthansa, KLM have had armies of psychologists. Emirates have done this for a long time. Um, and so... But other operators have suddenly thought, we've got to do something about this. And then when they've looked at the potential suppliers of aviation psychologists, there aren't that many of us. 
Um, so it's given an impetus to us as a profession to do something about that, because obviously there are, uh, because it's mandated in Europe, there are some countries that do not have any aviation psychologists at all. Um, the UK don't have very many. Now, the legislation on assessment isn't in, in, in the UK, didn't roll over with Brexit, Brexit. But there are very few of us. I think there are, there's probably at the moment accredited aviation psychologists in the UK. There's probably about eight, um, okay. not all of whom actually practice. Um, and the people who have my qualification, which is a clinical qualification, which allows us to look a bit more in depth at individuals, um, there's only two of us. <laughs> the other wow. guy isn't here. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, that's, that, that's interesting, and I didn't realise it, it went back so far. Because um, it, it, for me, it's it's still... It's still reasonably new in in my commercial role, uh, um, but but we we see as you mentioned now it would have been in legislation uh, certainly for yeah. pre employment testing uh, it was one of those things that 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 fell on the wayside uh, as we rolled out of EASA uh, yeah. into standalone but it will yeah. come into legislation as you say uh, in my sphere of experience we're we're all doing it we're all doing it yeah. now um, yeah yeah uh, I think. I think what seems to have happened is CAA are saying very clearly it is an operator decision. And and many operators are have taken the decision that they're going to do this anyway because they're aware of the the legislation in Europe. So for example, you get people like say like Logan there who are flying code share with KLM and other European partners. Um, they're really saying we have to do this because mm. because of the code share agreement. Um so it's it, it, it's going to happen anyway, I think, even though it's not going to be mandated. Um, my experience is some of the regulators in Europe are being particularly rigorous about it. I okay. seem to spend most of my time doing assessments from um, operators in Malta because the Maltese regulator is um, feeling the collars of operators to make sure <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah, okay. And... and- Obviously, in, in most people's minds as well will uh, be the German wings uh, incident, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously precipitated a lot more yeah. of an interest, particularly from EASA into psychology. Yes. Do you think in some respects, and for those those who don't know, the German wings incident, and, and Paul, you will have far more detail and knowledge on this than me, but was an incident where, uh, I, I won't name the airline, but uh, an aircraft was basically presumed to have been flown into the ground by a co-pilot who had actually known um, psychological and mental health issues, uh, obviously resulting in in the death of all the crew and all the passengers. And at that time, EASA reacted quite quickly. Do you think in some respects, and, and please fill in the details on that, but do you think in some respects that there may have been a slight knee-jerk reaction to that, yeah. or do you think it was required I think it was. I think it was a fairly, you know, the history of it obviously is that there was a task force. The task force, I'm not quite sure why, came up with this. One of the recommendations is there should be or mandated psychological assessment. Um, and I, I, um, I, many of us in the psychological field said things like, we will not stop another German wings by assessing every single pilot because you don't know what will happen between the point of assessment and the point of a, the action. Mm. Um, you know, and I always say I could see somebody tomorrow and they'll be perfectly fine. Um, but something might happen in their life that triggers something three or four years down the line. I think what it can do is pick up people where there is some underlying propensity and difficulty. And, and you know, in my practice, I have actually found some. You know, people say to me, how many people do you fail on psychologically? Well, that was going to be a question. <laughs> and I failed. I failed one not very long ago. And, and and the thing at the back of my mind was something that was said to me by a mutual um, colleague of, of both of ours, um, which, which, which was, when you're doing these assessments, just think, do you want to be sitting in the seat next to this guy flying that aircraft? And if mm. the answer to that is no, then you definitely have to fail them. Um, 
And um, so, you know, there's always things like that at the back of your, your mind. But I, I think you're right. I think the German Wings was a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction. It didn't have a lot of research underpinning it that was robust. Um, I think it did some very uh, important things in strengthening the role of support programs, um, which okay. you know we might talk about in a minute. But I think in uh, along the line of psychological assessment, it, it really didn't. It really didn't need to go down that route, and that is why the CAA is not mandating it. They don't okay. think that's the way to go. FAA have also not mandated it. And FAA have said quite strongly they're not going down that route either. So it is going to be purely an IASA um, thing that's, that's, that pilots have to go through the assessment process. I think, you, you know, I can pick out people who are difficult, but who may not necessarily then go on to, you know, fly an aircraft into a mountain. But that's a different issue altogether. I, can I think, but the, I think that's it's it's relevant as well, and and it's sometimes quite hard to pick up uh, an interview, um, an interview a little bit like the psychological assessments, a bit an MOT, and people, you know, it's good for the day that it was done, uh, but a, yeah. a lot of people, you know, aren't themselves at interview or behave themselves at interview. Uh, yeah. But the, the interesting point you raised there is that do I want to sit next to this person? And now, okay, for for my profession. That that could be, you know, it could be for six or seven hours. Uh, yeah, sure. But but you know, if in a, in the airlines, that could be for fifteen hours. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah. And you really want to have the kind of person that you do want to sit next to, and yeah. and get on with uh, yeah. for that length of time. And in some respects, that's probably a, a more subtle um, benefit of the system, sure. more yeah. than probably picking out people who are going to be deeply unsuitable. I would imagine, because yeah. I would imagine yeah. that even before they get to someone like yourself, maybe the training system may have filtered some people out that are unsuitable. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. No, it's a, it, I, I, I have to be careful what I say because I, I don't want to break any confidences, but I've certainly seen the results of some of your assessments and I've been able now to compare them to, to the people that they were done for. Um, and, and it's quite interesting. You can pick out traits, and that's why I've never let you do it on me. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, I do have a hotline to the CAA if necessary. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I think um, I think I think there's there's a number of issues. One is, can you pick out people who are pilots who are likely to take their life with an aircraft? The answer to that is possibly not. You could pick out the very obvious things. Absolutely. Any clinician would be able to, you know, their, their antennae would go up straight away um, and, and you can pick that out. But actually, the, I mean, we know the sort of incidences of pilot suicide by aircraft are absolutely infinitesimally small. I think I've got a list of them somewhere. Uh, and interestingly, I... I think there's never been one with a rotary wing aircraft. There has been suicide in association. It mm -hmm. was a Belgian pilot who sort of departed the cockpit two or three years back. Um, and the the guy in the left-hand seat looked over and he, he was gone. <laughs> he jumped out. Um, but um, that's few and far between. But, you know, you can pick out those, those sort of issues and people who are who potentially who, there's a fundamental issue. But it's the more subtle things that are more difficult. And the subtle things are, how would you get on with your colleagues? You know, it's a CRM, you know, the crew resource yeah. management issues. How well are you going to work in a crew? Um, it's particularly when I go into the search and rescue field, it's, you know, how well are people going to be able to work with that sort of multidisciplinary crew, which is a very different question than are they going to take their life by jump by you know an aircraft, um, so it, it's 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 quite a subtle thing in some some ways, and that's why I think certainly I get used because of the clinical background of being able to maybe pick some of these things out. Um, the other the other factor in it is it is possible to pick out people who have a propensity for unsafe operations. Okay, um, 
which you might not see until they're actually in line operations. And we know that there, there is a personality trait called conscientiousness. And there is a very direct link between that and safety in aviation. People who are low in conscientiousness have an increased number of safety-related incidents. So it is right. something right. I look for. And it's one of the things where I would say, maybe not take this person on because they're not um, at the level I would associate with a safe pilot. So what you're looking at, looking for there are safe behaviours. So that conscientiousness, is that in, in, in the true sense of the word then? So if someone who is... He's, who's very conscious, conscientious about their work ethic. Is that is it the same thing? Is it the same trait? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. People who are, I mean, if you look at the characteristics, it's people, people who are on time, they're reliable, they're organized, they're structured in the way they do things. They stick to SOPs and procedures, you know, without deviating. Um, and so there were lots of, I mean, it, there were some funny questions in one of the assessments I use, which is, I leave a mess in my room. <laughs> and, and conscientious people tend not to leave a mess <laughs> in their room. Okay. <laughs> it's oh. one of the ways you can judge conscientiousness. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think pilots, pilots tend to be. Yeah, they tend to be a little bit obsessive, I would say, uh, and, yes. and not, I don't like to use, I don't yeah. like to use the words you know, OCD because it's always used now in the wrong sense. Yeah. But we we do tend to be fairly obsessive people. Uh, my yeah. wife certainly says that I'm totally obsessive uh, when I when I'm given a task to do, I do it to the nth degree. Yeah. And yeah. and having now been in management for quite a while, you see it in others, you, uh, mm. and and sometimes that's our downfall. Um, yes. because, yeah. and, and, yeah. and this is getting away now slightly, we're probably moving on to the other subject that we maybe could talk about in a moment about support, is that because we tend to be fairly obsessive people, we tend to get very stressed when we mm. can't obsess about things yeah. or when we obsess about things, but they don't go in our direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's that's yeah. really quite interesting. I, I know yeah. there was a, I don't know if you've ever seen it, there was a, a film you, you will have seen it, I'm sure, but done by, a, a, it was an American warrant officer. I've got the name of the film now. I was shown it back in my Air Force days, uh, and he he had a, basically had a, a nervous breakdown and uh, went off to study psychology as well. I think he was a helicopter pilot. And uh, he then went around and did these long presentations to, to the Americans, and it, and it virtually worked its way across to the Air Force and other armed services. But it was quite interesting what he said. And one of the things that made me laugh was he said, he was basically asking questions of his audience. He was saying, you know, I bet when you shave in the morning, you always shave in exactly the same manner. You know, you, you do that that side, that stroke to, to the nth degree. But one thing he did really yeah. make me laugh was he said, when you say you're going on holiday, you'll tell the family that, you know, you're going to be in the car. The car will depart at 9.30 in the morning. Yes. So to you... <laughs> That means that you will be ready in the car at nine twenty-five, exactly, just yeah. to, to make sure that everything's going to go to plan and that you will depart at nine thirty. Yes, and that is totally me. And yeah. over the thirty years of marriage, and, and my wife, if she ever listens to this, will now kill me. Um, <laughs> but she's totally the opposite. It doesn't really matter. She leaves at nine thirty, and it doesn't phase her or worry her at all. And over the years, I've had to learn to deal with that and not let it stress me. And, but, but initially, I remember when we were first married, especially when we first had children, I, it, it drove me spare. And it still does now. I, I just cannot abide being late for yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, and I'm always mortified if I'm late for anything. And that's part of our personality trait. And it's, and it's so true. And I think, and, and we have to learn how to deal with that because yeah. I think that's one yeah. of the things that we can really yes. put ourselves down a hole with. And, and it, you, it's quite an interesting one because what you're talking about is the extremes of conscientiousness where it does begin to phase into OCD. And, and people, that is where the sort of interface between what is a, an effective behavior for managing yourself becomes something which is an ineffective way of dealing with things. Um, and that you know you're at that sort of borderline. So there's a, quite a lot of research which says too much conscientiousness is as bad as too little. Yeah. And it shows up where, particularly in aviation, where people who are overly conscientious 
when things go wrong, what do they do? They go to the checklist, they go to the manuals, they search incessantly for the right piece of information to solve the problem. And there was a well-known accident, I think it was in Florida, where um, they, they ran out of fuel because they were spending so long to find the source of a warning light that had come on that they, yes. they missed the obvious stuff, which yeah, was well known. basically they, they didn't have enough fuel and, 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 and there was the accident. So I think you have to be careful with OCD because it is the extreme of that. Um, it, it's one of the funny things that I, I've always noticed about assessing pilots is that pilots who are conscientious always turn up a half an hour at least before their appointment time. Um, and and uh, it becomes it became a standing joke in the place where I did a lot of assessments early that um, if they weren't there a half an hour before, then it was highly likely that when they were when I was assessing them, their score on conscious conscientiousness wouldn't be very high. And certainly if they were late at all, they definitely were not <laughs> conscientious because most people to avoid being late have lots of fallback processes and procedures mm. to make sure they're going to be somewhere on time. <laughs> yeah, I still set still set two alarm clocks um, if, if I know I'm flying early in the morning. Yep. I can't help myself. Yep. Highly accurate, uh, no, no, no more wind-up ones that you, know, you did, couldn't rely on. Uh, but yes. yeah, I, I still do that um, because otherwise I won't sleep properly. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. it's really good, and that, yeah. that is it is fascinating, and it, and it's a subject I could probably talk about all night because you just you see it again and again, and uh, yeah, and it yeah. and it manifests itself in all walks of life. So yes. you see it come out, and in and unfortunately, for 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 not for not for all of us, but for some of us. That can that can be a real downfall because in the wrong mm. it, it might be good in the right situation, but in the yeah. wrong situation yeah. it's not yeah. healthy. Uh, yeah. Which leads me yeah. nicely um into something that, that that's not really a well it is, I suppose it's a relatively hot topic now is pilot peer support. Yeah. yeah. Um which which has come into UK legislation. It and, has uh, indeed, yeah. Yeah. And we've done we, we we between us all we've done a fair amount of work on in recent uh, recent well years and months. Could you just tell us a little bit, Paul, about what what pilot peer support means? Yeah, um, it originated um, I think originally in the states and then quite quickly in into Europe um, through an, a body called Stiftung Mede, which is a German um, organization. Um, and it's the notion that people can have recourse to talking with another pilot about issues where they can't have recourse to speaking to, um, say, a manager or their, particularly their AME. They can have a confidential conversation with somebody else uh, and a trained person will be able to listen to what the issues are and perhaps signpost them towards some sort of second level of help. And how most pilot peer support programs work is that there is a there's a body of trained peer supporters who get a fair amount of training on how to provide support, but also on how to onward refer to specialists. Um, people can contact them and have confidential conversations which don't go anywhere near management. And one of the things in the regulation is that the support program has to be separate from any management contact um, and uh, has to be completely confidential. They don't even need to say their name, for example. They can just have a conversation with somebody. Um, and the peer supporter who's been trained would then be able to do almost like a triage. They'd be able to say, I think you need to go and see. Um, they may need to um, be signposted towards some other sort of support outside of aviation. Or if it's serious enough, they may be able to escalate it either to somebody like me or suggest that they go and talk to their AME. Um, and occasionally they may also need to go to management and just get time off duty because that's what they need. So it's a way of providing this confidential support. In many ways, what it does is make formal the informal contacts that people had anyway, where pilots would talk to pilots. I mean, a lot of 
you know, the long, long haul crews I talk to will tell you, you know, we have these wonderful conversations while we're sitting over the Atlantic in the middle of the night when there's nothing much else to do. Um, and it's amazing how much people open up and talk. And what that is, is peer support. It's just people talking about issues and and and, and being able to get things off their chest sometimes. But yeah. unfortunately... Do you think, do you th- sorry to interrupt. Do you, do you think, uh, obviously, we're a kind of very male-dominated um industry there's no getting away from that and, and on the previous podcasts you know we've spoken about that how we're trying to change that in the industry but at the moment that that is a fact mm. and and blokes are just not very good at coming forward and talking about their problems or yeah. if you know if even if they just don't feel right we're not yeah. very good at it yeah. do you think that yeah. actually making peer support i know it's regulation but as you said sitting on the flight deck chatting to each other but actually making it actually a well a regulation a a raw an, an accepted process encourages people even outside of that process to be more open i think the evidence is that that is the case people people become a lot more um at ease talking about issues um it is i think it is a particular thing with pilots and i think that's because almost of the self-image that pilots develop of themselves, of control. And it's almost like we were talking about the conscientiousness of, you know, I am in control of this machine. Mm. I need to be the person in control of all of this um, because of the people in the back are relying on me to get them where they want to go safely. Um, So I think that then goes over into the emotional part and the personal life as well in terms of I need to be in control. And quite a lot of the pilots I get referred and I see will often mention this. I was in, they would say things like, I was in a situation that over which I had no control. Hmm. And that's when I went to pieces because I realized I couldn't control it the way I normally would. Um, and it's when people realize that there are some things in life that you just cannot control, you just have to go with it, um, that, you know, they then start a, a, a treatment process. But, but, but I, I think, yeah, I think it is specific with pilots. Um, my own concern, which I've raised quite a few times, is that I think there is also a big issue with uh, engineers, aerospace engineers, yep. who are also unlikely to be the people who will talk about feelings a great deal because that's why they do the job they do. You know, They're not in social work. They're in dealing with heavy stuff late at night and dark and hangers and you know in the cold. And I, I, I think there is a particular issue there which has not been addressed so far. Yeah, we've moved, I mean, aircrew-wise, yeah, we've moved on leaps and bounds over, you know, certainly the, the, well, how long have I been flying? Probably 37, 37 years, you know, in terms of crew resource management, the peer support programmes that's coming in, you know, we, we, we refresh every year. We have, if we join a new company, you know, you have two days of, resource management we talk about it all the time from a management point of view yeah. we're always referring to it you know every month at a flight ops uh, yeah. safety meeting it's referred to so it's a core skill that we want people to have and and yeah. to be open but you're absolutely right the engineers they, they do human factors but it, it's yeah. it's not taken anywhere near as seriously which is peculiar when you think about it because yeah. they're yeah. just as critical as as the air crew absolutely uh, yeah. yeah you know and i I always say that there's a bigger risk to aircraft safety from a, an engineer with mental wealth, mental health and well-being issues as a pilot. You know, it only needs somebody to forget to latch something up uh, or it only needs somebody to not talk something up the right degree. You know, there's lots of ways in which people who are distracted and their head is somewhere else will perform unsafe acts the same way. Yeah, that, and I think know, the pilot. Dis- Distraction is 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 the key there as well. Um, yeah, we talk about distraction uh, uh, in a different sense, but when an engineer is in the workplace, there's so many opportunities for distraction, particularly these yeah. days. You know, I, yeah. I always, I always still shudder a little bit if I see someone next to an aircraft on their mobile phone. Now they could be looking, they could be looking at a manual or something like that. But again, yeah. there are so many avenues. Once we're in the cockpit, it's e- it's a lot easier for us because it's contained. We have rules, regulations. You can't look at, you shouldn't be looking at your mobile phone. Blah blah blah. And there, there's less, and there's not, there's not 
a queue of people who want to say, you know, oh, there's, you know, there's a, there's a delivery arrived or have you seen this or, yep. you know, yep. and so yep. the, I see that all the time. And the, the, I, I always, it's a little bit like pilots doing pre-flights. I always think, you know, it's almost sacrosanct. You shouldn't go near them. Uh, yes. And I always make a point yep. now, if I see an engineer in an aircraft and I want to speak to him, I, I wait and watch. And then if, if attention is comes my way, then I'll say, are you yep. okay to speak yep. or are you inside something? And, I yep. think distraction yep. is is a major major, but distraction comes in all forms as well because you, yep. you can, as you know, you just can distract yourself. So, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why the peer support program because it is to remove a source of distraction from external um, pressures, external anxieties, financial pressures, and all sorts of things. So you know, in a sense, it it it, it allows that that safety net. Um, it is a bit strange though because there's a big there's a number of big sort of paradoxes in peer support um who is audited by the caa and easo or any other regulator it's the operator but the operator isn't responsible for the peer support program because it has to be independent and totally confidential so there's a sort of an anomaly there um, mm. it's it's also i think very much biased towards large fixed wing operators and if you take the BAs of this world pilots pitch up there to you know fly a few sectors with somebody they've maybe never met in their life before they've you know they they may have flown with them 10 years ago and I've, I've evidenced these conversations of arriving and hearing two pilots you know saying well I haven't seen you for 10 years how are you getting on these days you know they don't know each other so um, they don't have the natural support. And I always say with, you know, with operations like, like you know, rotary wing operators, people know each other. They, they fly together regularly. And so they can pick up some of the subtle cues that something's not right with somebody. They don't need a peer support program to do that. All they need is just to be able to say, you know, you, know, you don't look yourself today. What's, yeah. what's troubling you? Um, so, I th I th you know, I think peer support is a bit of a, there's a few paradoxes in providing it. Great idea. Um, I, I hope at one stage it will disappear and it will disappear because people will be confident to talk to colleagues that way and to open up, but also they'll be confident to talk to management. Yeah. And another reason why peer support is there is because in many operators, the last person you talk to about a mental well-being issue is your manager. There are some that are really good at it, and there are some that it, you really do not want to go there. Um, so yeah, and that's and that's a real shame, and that and that and that kind of harks back to the whole just culture, uh, yeah. safety culture in in the company. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's probably a lot better than it was. Uh, I, yeah. I think I've said this in virtually every podcast actually. But this, um, even when we have talking about different subjects, you know, the way the industry has changed yeah. so yeah. much that, yeah. that even in the management structures, oh, it has got a lot better, and there are yeah. significantly different personalities, yes. uh, even yes. to when I left yeah. the air force. Um, yes. So that that's good. But you're absolutely right. There shouldn't really be a need for it. We should we should all be yeah. happy to to speak up uh, yeah. and 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 not. Not continuously, but yeah. uh, but yeah. you know when we genuinely are feeling that way that we should be able yeah. to speak up. I, and I wonder as well as we we moved away from that kind of crew room ethos as well. Uh, I know the airlines. Yeah, I think the airlines did have it because they spent a lot more time down route. But these days, you know, they because of the operation, because of the the FTL, they quite often can turn around and come back the short to medium haul guys, so they don't have that time in a hotel with the crew. Uh, and socialize and the same for us you know we don't have that time in a crew room anymore whereas yeah. when i started flying you know a lot of your time was taken sat in the crew room listening yeah. to people yeah. and also speaking and talking and yeah. quite often that was a good way for people to subtly get their Absolutely. feelings out there yeah. yeah i think it's it's the normal way of doing things it's the informal approach you know people who've got mates but um the, the, the particular group I think that really do need peer support are younger pilots who perhaps have joined an organisation, don't know many people. They've possibly moved to an area or even a country they don't know. Um, and so they're often quite isolated and lonely. 
Um, and I think that's a group that really do benefit from peer support. Having said that, my experience of peer support programs, and there's a few I support, is that the most people that use it tend to be older pilots rather than the younger pilots, which is a very interesting sort of take on it. Um, and particularly now, there's been a big increase um, because of uh, and scheduled airlines starting to ramp up operations again. There's been quite a few examples of older pilots' feelings uh, or understanding they've got skill fade. They are then anxious about being able to get back into the job because they don't think they're able to perform the way they used to because in some cases they haven't touched an aircraft for two years. Um, I was going to ask about that. Have you seen any changes because of the pandemic? Yep. Uh, again, again, our industry, my industry, we, we carried on. So yeah, exactly. there has been lots of... Yeah. That has caused different yeah. stresses and, yes. and different issues, but it hasn't yeah. caused the one where you've had yeah. to have a gap of two years and then come back. What what yeah. have you seen, yeah. Paul, in, in in return to airline flying? There's, I think people have come back actually from quite a different place because um, there's been a lot of anxiety, particularly in, in the younger pilot group, because flying is money. Quite often they've got a big, debt they need to service that's not been possible um, they've um, there's been various ways in which some airlines have been very good at supporting people and others haven't um, so and, and I think with all of that there's also the whole question of currency people feeling that they have their skills have faded um, there's also a lack of motivation sometimes you know people saying I don't know why I need to get up at four o'clock in the morning for a five o'clock report you know I actually have had a great time. I can stay in my bed till 10. Do I really want to go back to this? Um, so I've come across quite a few who have who've left the industry because they've done other things um, and have then decided that the type of life that they had, even long haul, where you know, you're away for days on a time, you, you know, if you've got a young family, you're not going to see them. So people have just lost a lot of motivation. It's actually, a, funnily enough, I was talking about this yesterday when I was down in Stansted. The, the, um, it's a bigger issue for cabin crew because cabin okay. crew don't have the same investment in the job as pilots do. Um, and many cabin crew have said, sod that, I'm not going to get up at four o'clock in the morning anymore to fly 200 drunken people to Alicante. I've got a better things to do with my life. So there's I actually think when you're on, yeah, when you're on the hamster wheel, it's it, it sometimes you know you, you you're away and and there's no chance to reflect and uh, again the, there's yeah. some some bit of a repetitiveness in these podcasts because we've I've said this a, a couple of times as well is that this two years in for some people has given them well again and I've said this twice now is that it gives people a chance to reflect and yes. sometimes as you say you think when you're actually doing it and in it every day yeah. you don't have a chance to reflect and it's just normal life it's normal yeah. life to feel fairly kind of stressed by getting up yep. at four o'clock in the morning, yep. you know, landing at three o'clock in the morning uh, and you don't, you notice it, but you don't have time to reflect on it. Yep. And I think some people have seen this and it's not just aviation. I think a lot yep. of people have looked at life and particularly with everything that else has happened and is going on mm -hmm. in the world, people mm -hmm. have looked back and think, well, do you know what? I, I'm not sure I actually really want to do this. Yeah. And it's that chance to, ref that's that chance to reflect. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah. which has made the difference. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. it's very interesting. And the, the cabin crew point, I, I totally get that. Uh, I can see, yeah, you're not, you're not invested in it. You're, you're not high salaried. So, yeah. you know, you're not likely, probably not likely to have massive mortgages like, you know, that, that some, you know, particularly pilots might get themselves into because of their, earning potential and you can just say actually no i'm not doing this and and, and it and I, I'm, I'm sure you know it's i'm sure some people absolutely love that job that you can see just mm. by flying mm. on a commercial mm. basis that at times it must be fairly horrible to be yeah. there. Yeah. yeah and i i um i think i think as well with that that um particularly the cabin crew have, have been able to go off and get other jobs fairly fairly easily uh, transferable skills for pilots uh, that you know although many have gone on and done things like um, driving for amazon and <laughs> supermarkets and um, i came across one the other day who'd gone off and got an hgv license 
and um, yeah. saying, you know, in some ways, he said this is more fun, you know, driving a sort of an articulated <laughs> think, lorry than flying a seven. The Amazon driver, the Amazon driver theme has been a theme of the podcast as well. Uh, <laughs> we, I, I think there should probably be a peer support program for Amazon drivers, oh boy, um, yeah. <laughs> because uh, yeah, again, you know, they have had no respite, uh, yeah. and 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 the pressures that these guys and girls are yes. under is immense, yeah. absolutely yeah. immense. I mean, I'm joking, I'm making light of it, but yeah. you, you could you can see. I mean, you know, yeah. I, and when you stand and chat and and get a moment where they've not got to make the next drop. But you know they're under massive pressure to make the drops on time, and it, yeah. and it's all relative, isn't it? We all look, we look at our little our little worlds and go, well, oh, that's that's a bit stressful, you know, or yeah. you know, I'm, I've put myself under a lot of pressure because I've, I've I've got off the ground thirty minutes late, and you know, but then you look at you look at some of these other jobs, you know, way outside of healthcare and all these things, but like I think delivery driving. Yeah. It must be massively stressful, oh, yeah. particularly, yeah. particularly, I, I, particularly. I think if you put a pilot in it, because he's going to be, going, I'd be going nuts. That well, I would be going late. Well, remember also, airspace is regulated. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but yeah. the road space isn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it may yeah. only be two D as opposed to three D, but yeah, <laughs> it's you know, it it it's got a lot a lot more hazards, I think, than it than than you get. Um, but I, you know, to counter that, I think there's another side of it is, and, and a lot of uh, I've been been assessing a lot of pilots for a new startup operation, um, and most of them have been either made redundant from uh, through the COVID situation. Um, or have been on long-term furlough and so on as a result of it. And most of them are absolutely desperate to get back to flying in a mm. way that you don't see, and I think, in other professions that people just really want to go back and do the job. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there, I think there's an overwhelming sort of desire that they just want to get back and do the thing that gives them their own personal identity, you know, which is to put the uniform on, to pitch up at an awful hours, uh, awful hours of the morning, you know, wearing their uniform. But actually, that's that's what gives them yeah people as individual people people you know complain uh, uh, and moan, but we all did it for a reason, and, and yeah. most of us did it the reason because. We absolutely are in love with aviation. Yeah, uh, you can grow out. You can grow out of that. Uh, I I haven't. Um, yeah. I've grown out of love of certain bits of aviation, but you know, yeah. I, I I still you know of a weekend. You know, I go and, yeah. I go and fly a plane because I, I still <laughs> I'm still like a little kid. That's another pilot trait. I think you know you, you can. Was it they say you can either? You, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, you, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one or the other. Um, yeah. And, and but you know, I still get it. I still get that thrill, um, flying, flying for me, flying you know light aircraft. When every time I get off the ground and every time I land, um, I. I think there is something about aviation as well. I think as a, you know, as a sort of concept, because you know, people say to me, "Why do you do what you do?" And I say, well, "I actually love it because I would not do this if I didn't didn't like it." But actually, I like it because of the, the the interesting area it is. Um, there's a sort of a, um, there's a real there's something different about it as a, as a as a sort of an area and I've I've in my previous sort of consultancy roles as a psychologist worked in different sectors like oil and gas and retail finance but none of them have got quite the attraction I think of aviation of being uh, a, a, and also the interest that I find in it. Because um, people often ask me, how do you manage to keep going only working in one sector? I said, well, I really wouldn't want to work anywhere else. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think that I, that keeps me motivated is that I do believe that psychology and psychologists are valued in aviation because of this link with things like CRM, um, you know, stress, fatigue, uh, even down to cockpit design, the ergonomic side of it. Um, I, I, I feel professionally valued in aviation in a way I didn't feel in some of these other areas where people would say, oh, you know, here comes the trick cyclist again you know, <laughs> and would just roll their eyes. Whereas I've, I've never had any of that in aviation. People have always been um, interested. They've always been sort of responsive to things that I've um, been involved with as well. 
Yeah, I think we see it as a, as a big positive now. You mentioned like psychiatry. Um, back in the day, you know, if you were referred to a psychiatrist in the aviation world, it, it was pretty much the end. Uh, and, and as I think you, you've got some good stats, I think now, I think, you know, if you are referred, certainly in in the yeah. UK, there's a very good um, oh, yeah. chance that you will get your license back. Is it way into the 90 percent? Is that Paul? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's 90 percent or more. Um, the, and and the, the people who don't have usually got diagnosable conditions that really they shouldn't have been in the cockpit in the first place, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Just but, going back to yeah, the peer support for a moment. What What is the I mean? It's quite new uh, in our world. Uh, obviously, people like BA and and, and some, uh, some of the other airlines have been doing it for a while. What is the take up rate? Uh, you know, in, in in terms of use of of the service, two point five, two point five percent. Absolutely standard everywhere you look. It it went down during the pandemic, but that's what you expect. It's gone up slightly since that's happened. Um, the, the the major one that I'm involved with, um, which is a scheduled seasonal operator, they are a fixed wing. They're, we're getting quite an increase there, but that's because they're ramping up activities. But it's still not really quite back to 2.5% of all pilots. So it's another one of these paradoxes. You've got quite a, a sort of a fairly regulated um, issue for a relatively small number of pilots. And I always say 90% of pilots are absolutely perfectly fine. The only thing they need is perhaps some awareness of mental health and well-being. And that to me is done through CRM, or it should be done through CRM. Um, And it should be a regular part of recovery, the same way that stress and fatigue are covered, physical and mental well-being should be part of that too. and also just flagging up that people need to be self-aware because that's the key to it, that people realise, you know, it says on the back of the licence, <laughs> you know, you need to be in a fit state to operate. And if you're not, then it's your responsibility to do something about it. Yeah, I think that has hit the nail on the head. As you say, the actual self-awareness side, but also that gives you awareness of other people. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that's something we've probably not been great at. Uh, he'll be all right. He's fine. He's just, you know, he's just this or she's just that. Um, And that, that is probably more valuable, as you said, than, than actually talking to a peer in some respects. I think that, that general awareness that it is, it is, it's almost becoming a cliche, but it is okay not to be okay. Sure. Um, Yeah. And that, that to me is, that to me is a significant change. Yeah. You know, even in the last, I don't know, three or four years, Yes, um, that, that yes. it's 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 okay. It's I always say to people, it's, it's difficult to pin down. If you break your leg, it's obvious. You know, mm. you've got a broken leg, you can't fly. Mm. Well, mm. you know, if you're having mm. a, a mental well-being or mental health issue, it's just mm. the same. You are yeah. still ill. Yeah. Um, not maybe not clinically ill, but you are yeah. still ill. You're not yeah. well, and therefore yeah. you shouldn't be flying. Yeah. Uh, and and it's hard still to get people to equate the two because you can't see it. Yes. If you can see someone's leg in plaster, it's easy. Yes. You physically can't get in the aircraft. That's easy. It's yeah. it's the other bit that's yeah. hidden. Uh yeah. and, and and I certainly I'm certainly more more aware of it. And I've certainly been through myself, you know, some pretty stressful, deep, dark times. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm more than more happy now to talk about stuff that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. And and I and I hear it coming out from lots of other people as well. In fact, I was yeah. listening to a podcast the other day uh flight deck wingman who's oh, yeah. uh yeah, yeah who, who's got an excellent podcast and he yeah. was interviewing uh a, a, an aspiring instagram uh captain chris i think he's called uh star uh and and both of them uh, mentioned points in their career and, and recently where you know even through a point of exhaustion not so yeah. much mental yeah. well-being but it is mental well-being yeah. not so much mental health but just yeah realizing that you're exhausted and it yes. may be exhausted not because of your job but just because of life yes yeah yeah but that's yeah. going to manifest itself probably pretty horribly sometimes in the cockpit yeah, yeah. 99 yeah. times out of 10 100 no two crew yeah. but it's, yeah. it's when everything adds up when all the when then all the holes align that's that's when it comes out now that's it's really interesting and that that rate of two and a half percent yeah even as across a like someone like ba it probably is you know a, a reasonable amount of pilots 
for yeah. as you say for rotary operators and for small small fixed wing operators it's going to be a tiny number we're talking yeah, yeah. one yeah. or two people a yeah. year that might have to use service and it might not be for something you're hoping that with this peer support program that it doesn't even go near you that yeah, that, that matter yeah yeah has, is, has been spoken about and yeah. ha happily the pilot might go away saying that's put that into perspective for me yes um, yeah. where it works well that's exactly what happens exactly that yeah um I, I do have a concern about people who only fly, fly single crew because they can be a little bit more vulnerable. And, and I suppose even when you get into the field of, you know, sort of uh, PPL holders and, and so on, that, you know, there's there's still a lesson there because, you know, we know what the accident rate is like in uh, yeah. and aviation. <laughs> general aviation, there's no one regulating you in that exactly. sense. Yeah. So you yeah. can you can jump. Into, you know, because it, it, it's it's one of the things that I love, uh, yeah. and so uh, you know I'm surrounded by you know private pilots whenever I'm fly out flying for fun, and the awareness and the uh, risk perspective people mm. have is totally different, and it's yes. something that actually yeah. uh, I, I'd like to talk. I, I have spoken about uh, and you know, threat yeah. and error management for particularly yes. for private pilots. Yeah. And and yeah. but it does bleed over the fact that, you know, and we've seen it. I mean, there has been accidents where yeah. where the authority has picked up or the AIB has picked up that, you know, someone's yeah. life wasn't going in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and they're massively distracted. And you are still flying. And yes. you are still flying sometimes yeah. on your own. Yeah. Well, generally on your own, uh, or yeah. as the only pilot, you probably might have passengers with you. Yeah. You are flying an aircraft which takes a lot more flying than what we do. Uh, yes. On a day-to-day -day basis, because yes. we're assisted by all kinds of things, yep. and you know you're you're not so well provided for, um, and so, so in some some respects it can, and you're not generally as well trained or as current, because and so it can that can all add up, and you yep. add on top of that someone who's distracted by something else that's happened, yep. and it, and yep. it can be something quite simple, yep. just like a car accident or something yep. like that. And, and yeah. you see it and you yeah. you can see people when they go flying, they drag the, and, and of course, if it's your hobby, what do you do when you're stressed? Yeah. <laughs> you go, you, you go and you go, it's your hobby. So relaxation is to yeah. go and drag the airplane out and hang yeah. and go flying. Of course, yeah. part of flying is the challenge and the slight element of risk. Mm. So it's not actually, it's not like going fishing or, or yeah. something like that. It's not the yeah. ideal relaxation. It's something I could, Again, I could talk about for hours because it's something that fascinates me. I think the yeah. commercial world is yeah. well, never going to be perfect, but it's very Absolutely. well covered. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, uh, I did some presentations a few years back on pressure to fly, um, and and part of that was people, um, you know, creating their own internal pressure because they only had a couple of hours on a Saturday afternoon and they maybe didn't feel great, but that's that's what they were going to do. And the weather wasn't maybe as good as they hoped, but hey, I do need to go and do it. And people making then, getting into, into you know, decision-making that's faulty. Um, and, you know, there were quite a lot of examples I used, I used to give in that presentation uh, about what had happened as a result of that. Um, and, and, and part of it was actually aimed not so much at the general aviation, but it was aimed at the rotary wing, uh, particularly single crew operations, and particularly things like HEMS, um, where there is an incredible pressure to complete the mission because yep. they know the people in the back have got to get to hospital. And you can read the accident stats on HEMS operations. You know, people, pilots making that decision, ostensibly for the right reason, but actually the wrong reason. And they create yeah. internal pressure to fly, um, but I must admit, I mean, one of the reasons that I don't fly <laughs> is, is because I am aware I have extremely poor eye-hand coordination. <laughs> um, and I did. I thought have, you were trying. Didn't you not? Did you not have a go? I thought you had. Yeah, a go. Oh, yeah, and an R twenty-two. Yes, yeah. Um, um, I put the back of Peter Coulter, and uh, it. it um, I do remember the look on the face of the guy who was up with me <laughs> when we came back down. And I do real I realized myself, I really am not going to make a success of this. It's really not going to work for me. Um, so uh, I, I just haven't gone there. And then I had an eyesight problem, which is done now. I can, I've got the eyesight, but I still don't have the coordination, certainly not for a, 
not for a, a rotary wing operator. I might be okay with fixed wing. I don't know. Um, but I can see that I can see the attraction. I see why people want to do it, and then create perhaps even the internal pressure on themselves to just go out and do something that when they really shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, and and that you also see people um, like in the commercial world where they probably should have given up. They should have given up ages ago. But you put that. But in like you said, pilots want to come back to flying in the commercial world because it is who they are. Uh, and you do get a little bit of that in the general aviation leisure flying as well. It becomes to some people who they are. And, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that, that's that, that's, I don't know, that's yeah. John and John's got his own airplane and John He's, flies everywhere yeah. in the business and yeah. stuff like that. And, and you do see some people and you can see some people uh, that scare the living daylights out of themselves and yeah. yet continue. Yes. Uh, and, yes, and the world of social media now has made that even more obvious. I, I you know, I yes. follow lots of Facebook groups and stuff, and yes. people—it's great. People put their mistakes on, and that's fantastic for other people yeah, to learn lots. from. But quite often, you see mistakes being made by the same person again, 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 and again, and you think to yourself, "Why have you not stopped? Why is this is this is no longer the right thing to do? This cannot be fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is this yeah. is not fun unless you've got some kind of." psychological yeah. disorder where you you know that he, that that's enjoyment or, or there's the vain hope that one day you'll get it absolutely right and um, and you know where the end of that's going to be you can see with yeah. people like that you know their likelihood is that they're going to have one too many one day yeah, uh, yeah. One too many incidents. No, really interesting and and that's it's been fascinating paul and, and there's so much more we could talk about. I know that uh, I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching the clock here a little <laughs> bit. We've actually been talking for an hour already, which oh, is God. fantastic. And 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 I've only yeah. just noticed. Um, yeah. I like to round these things up. Uh, by the way, for everybody, Paul, obviously your business, Core Psychology, Core Aviation that, Psychology, Core Aviation Psychology. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm sure if you want to yeah. find out more or you want to uh, even cool. speak to Paul about something, you'll find them on the web. And I will put it in the show yeah. notes as well. Yeah. Um, I do quite. A, I, I pick up quite a few people. Just contact me, inspect. I think going back to what we were saying a minute ago, one of the things I've noticed a big increase of are pilots taking action on their own, and not okay. going to the AME, but actually just calling me and say, "Look, can I just have a discussion with you?" And I'm quite happy to do that. Um, and uh, you know, I take referrals also from AMEs quite often, particularly for people who want to get a PPL who've got any history of. Um, a psychiatric or psychological treatment, um, then I can I can provide the report for people. I That's do a lot brilliant. of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly put we'll put some links in the show notes for that. I, I asked one question. Uh, now it's going to make I'm making this a tradition, uh, and you can answer this in any which way you like. It doesn't have to be to do with aviation. Doesn't have to be to do with anything in particular. But what do you think the world will look like to? Well, I say Paul Dickens in five years time. Ooh, yeah, I, I would have had a view on that until recent events. <laughs> there's a little, there's a sort of ten percent of me thinks that we may not be here. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we will. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we will be. I, 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 I do think that the world will it'll it'll settle again in some way or other. Um, not well for some people, obviously, but but I, I think things will sort of. I think you know, even the aviation industry, I think is beginning to start to pick up again from the pandemic issue. Um, I think it will be different in the sense that uh, the whole pandemic has changed people's perceptions of what they want from life, that people want something that's more fulfilling. People mm -hmm. have enjoyed the ways of working they've had. I've noticed a big increase in um, commercial airlines beginning to offer part-time contracts so that people can do other things or that they just don't have to spend, you know, their sort of committed life um, doing the one thing. They can go off and do other things. And and quite often I'm coming across pilots who are, you know, 50% of their time in aviation, 50% doing something totally different. I think the world's going to be a bit more flexible in that sense, particularly the world of work uh, in, in, in five years' time. Um, and I think also, we, you know, we'll see all this, the, the, the rise of automation. I think we'll still have two people in the, in the cockpit and commercial airlines for quite some time. Mm. I don't think we'll be flying on drones for a bit. But um, 
uh, you never know that might change <laughs> yeah and the whole the whole evito world will yeah. open up a whole new different kind of strain of pilots as well yes uh, yeah. which yeah. which if and when it happens uh, and and again it's something i can speak about probably for hours yeah. is that yeah. these pilots will be very different to the stick and rudder pilots yes well it's yeah. changing already but we yeah. are still stick and rudder pilots yes these yeah. pilots will be pilots but not in the true yeah. sense of the word yes. uh, and that could possibly throw up all kinds of different issues i would imagine yeah. but maybe I mean, maybe maybe five years time um we'll come back and speak about it again <laughs> i'll be retired <laughs> so will i but we can still speak about it again Paul. <laughs> yeah for sure uh, but, but it's an interesting one because i mean if you follow what's happening in ukraine a lot of the damage being done to russian forces is by people with laptops yeah operating drones you know yeah and they're, they're sitting in all sorts of other places um and if we ever had the time there's a whole field of aviation psychology which is looking at the psychology behind people who pilot UAVs, which is a That's, fascinating area. <laughs> well, let's let's make a date on that. That's been brilliant, Paul. I, I, I would actually really like to do that. I, yeah. It's something I know absolutely nothing about. So it'd be Very fascinating easy. to get you back and have a chat yeah. about that. Yeah. But really, so, so thank you so much for being on. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm sure that people will learn a lot and uh, enjoy this as well. It's been great to chat with you. Take care, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cheers. A big thank you to Paul from Core Aviation Psychology for what has been a fascinating insight into the whole subject of mental health and well-being, not only for pilots, but the whole of the aviation industry. You can find Paul's website by visiting the show notes in your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, why not take a moment to subscribe to the Busy Aviation Podcast channel? If you or your business would like to appear on the Busy Aviation Podcast, please get in contact via our website at www.busyaviation.co.uk and if you need an online strategy or content or anything else for your aviation online presence, please get in contact. I really look forward to being of help. Thanks for listening and fly safely.